Good afternoon. Today on Living Writers and Scott Momaday, taped on Friday, March 11th, 2016, when N. Scott Momaday came to Ann Arbor to give the inaugural Robert F. Burkhoffer Jr. Lecture, sponsored by Native American Studies in conjunction with the Department of American Culture. Please join us. afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. And today I'm so happy to have N. Scott Mamaday here in the studio with me. We're taping this program. It's the 11th of March, 2016. Um, welcome, Scott, to, to the, the radio station and to campus. Yes, thank you, Ty. It's, it's, uh, it's very nice to be here. I've never been to the campus here before, and it's beautiful. I, we had a walk over from where where I'm staying, and uh, lovely, lovely. It's spring-like now. It is. I think the the, the crocus are, are kind of peeking out a yeah. little bit, <laughs> so we know there's hope. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, Scott, would you mind telling us a little bit about the song we just heard? Because you've chosen the music for today's program. Yeah, it is The Gift to Be Simple from Appalachian Spring is a beautiful tune. I think it's an old Quaker tune, actually. And uh, I've, I've loved it for a long time, and I've, I enjoy listening to it when it's raining outside. Why? I don't know. It just seems to fit that, uh, that context somehow. Oh, it's beautiful of, music. It's <laughs> wonderful. I don't know if because it's the first time I've, I've ever heard it, but I, to me I felt like it meant sunshine. But maybe it's the day. You know, I lived in I, I lived in San Francisco for some years, and I lived uh, in what is called the marina, and um, it had a bay window, my apartment, and I would uh, love listening to that music and seeing the rain come against the window, the, the bay window, reflections of street lights outside. It was just magical somehow. Oh, that must, it sounds like it's, why did you ever move? <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering that myself. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's time to have another pita ter a little, little place in San Francisco. Oh, it wouldn't be bad. <laughs> wouldn't say no. But, but you know, the Southwest is my native heathen. So I, all the time I was in California, uh, I was trying to get back to the Southwest and knew that I would eventually. And finally, I, it happened. And because you felt a pull f to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, I was twenty years in California and. Uh, all that time I was thinking, well, now how am I going to get back to uh, New Mexico, which is where I love to, to be? Well, you know, that's before we go any further, I'd like to thank um, Lauren at University of New Mexico Press for sending me a copy of The Way to Rainy Mountain mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> by N. Scott Mamaday and illustrated by your father, Al Mamaday. Right. Um, and I'll read the short bio on the back, and we'll be, um, of course, 
filling in parts of your story as we talk today, if you don't mind, Scott. <laughs> That's fine with me, yes. Um, actually, before I start, is it, is it Kiowa? Yes. Okay, thanks. I just wanted to make sure, because I'd actually never heard the name of the tribe out loud. I had only been reading it in my head. <laughs> I think about one-third of the people say Kiowa, which is correct, and the other two-thirds say Kiowa. Really? <laughs> well, as, as Tex pointed out to me earlier today, that sounds too much like quinoa, like <laughs> right. current, current trending yeah. food item. <laughs> so Kiowa. Um, right. And so maybe people now, people listening will now know. So yes. there'll be more than a third soon, Scott. Yeah, our listeners We're, are I'm shooting for half, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, a member of the Kiowa tribe, N. Scott Mamaday, was born in Oklahoma, but grew up on reservations in the Southwest. He was educated at the University of New Mexico and Stanford University, and later taught at Berkeley, Stanford, and the University of Arizona. Mamaday won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1969 for his novel, novel House Made of Dawn. And we've got that book with us. It's a great copy from the University of Michigan Hatcher Library with a dark red cover. <laughs> I think it, it's a first edition. It, it looks like a venerable edition. It is. Someone's loved it and made notes in it, too. You know? <laughs> yeah, I like that. Don't you? Yeah, I do. Yes, that's what books are for. Do you make a lot of notes in your... I do. Your... I do. Yeah, yeah. Is it? Are you having conversations with yourself in the book when you... Um, Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yes. I talk to myself a lot. And uh, that's that's part of the process of writing for me. I have to hear what I'm writing. So I talk, you know, I write something, I, I read it aloud to myself, and uh, then I carry on a little conversation to see if it's what I want it to be. And that's that's basically what I do. When you say carry on a conversation, is it that then you're trying out other like you have the line or mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. and then you actually, and, and you say it aloud, and mm -hmm. then you say other possibilities or other pieces, or are you hearing what's next, or? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I uh, read it, uh, read several versions of, of certain things, so I want to get the, the sound of inflections, so I would say, it was raining in the desert, or it was raining in the desert, or it was raining in the desert. You know, I do this kind of thing all the time. <laughs> and, and people listening might be like, huh. <laughs> yeah. But no, but that's what poets do. Of course. Yes, yes. It's part of it. That's right. That's right. It's, and it's part of finding what the real life of it is. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's how I feel about it. And uh, it works pretty well, doesn't it? You're a poet. You should, yeah, you do the same thing. And uh, something good comes of it. Yes. Yeah. One hopes. One hopes. Knock on wood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, Scott, clearly it has for you because we've got we've got four books on the table here, but that's not nearly the the number of books possible. Um, I I even checked out more from the Ann Arbor District Library. <laughs> People are right now like, ah, who has all these books? <laughs> Sorry, <Okay>. folks. <laughs> I'll return them soon. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, but uh, but but it's it's wonderful to to have this chance. You've, maybe we should say you've you've come to campus. You're you're giving a reading on it's tonight, March 11th. Um, and so, so by the time folks listen to this, they won't be actually able to, to hear the reading, unfortunately. But good news is there's lots of um, clips and um, videos of you on YouTube um, and your 
your wonderful voice. It's, uh, <laughs> I could just listen to you um, talk. Well, thank you. Forever. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't want to talk forever, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> the snatches here and there, that's all right. Yeah. Fragments. Fragments. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. um, so, and this is, you mentioned before we came on the air, Scott, that this is your first time at at Michigan. Yes, yes. I Oh, I've, you know, heard about the campus a long time, and I'm a great football fan, of course. And uh, so, are you? Oh, yes, indeed. College football is one of my glories. I love the. I love it when the, when the first game comes in September or so, and then I follow all the football through until its end, till the bowl games. And it's definitely college football. How do you feel about the NFL? Uh, less interested in that. I, I I enjoy watching some, and of course, they, they what they do is wonderful. They are so proficient and talented, uh, but lacks something, to me, it lacks something of the spirit of college ball. Definitely, especially I, when people just move around to different teams, and mm-hmm. it feels more financially driven, whereas I guess mm. well, I guess that's part of there's sort of a, an argument going on right now, like whether college athletes should be paid, too, <laughs> right, <laughs> a wage. Right. Um, but there is something about the spirit of it that feels different when it's for your school. Yes, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah, to, to to walk out into September or October weather and uh, hear the slap of leather and uh, see the ins- excitement of the of the teams. It's it's quite inspiring. I, I wouldn't want to live without it. You know, you'll have to come back then in the fall. Come to the big house. I would love to. I've seen pictures of it, of course, but uh, never been there. But wouldn't that be wonderful to come see Michigan play Ohio State, right? <laughs> oh, yes. yeah, I'm, I'm not supposed to mention that. that the Ohio State. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, it's wonderful, and it's also it's also a strange energy. You can just feel it, like everything is different right. in town, and it's so it's it's wonderful, but it's not always a good energy because there's some um, mm-hmm. not danger, but there's something to it that that feels. Uh, Something's different. Something's going to happen. Something's different. You know, uh, I when I was at Stanford, I went to the games, of course, and it's a nice stadium, and uh, all around it is a kind of wooded area, you know, and and the tailgate parties are wonderful. <laughs> I, that was an added dimension to the game, and a very good one. Right. <laughs> They've got those here too, Scott. Really, I'm sure. come back. I'm We're sure. gonna, gonna get you back here next fall. <laughs> I'd love to come. I'd love to come. Wear the blue and maize and oh. <laughs> Well, well, tonight. <clears throat> well, so what? What will you be? Um, what will what will you be talking about tonight? Like, are you going to be um, reading poems? Are you going to uh, be giving a talk, or or what? Uh, well, I'll tell you what I have in mind. Because you're not here for a football game no, this time, no, unfortunately. No. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm hoping to talk about uh, language and uh, uh, the meaning of the word, the power of the word, and um, the oral tradition, which is one of my special interests. So storytelling, basically, is, is what I'll be doing. Um, so do you mind if we talk a bit about storytelling? Not at all. This afternoon, then. Sure. Um, the power of the story. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's why... So we have The Way to Rainy Mountain on the table, the mm-hmm. book. Um, and that's really why <clears throat> trying to record stories that you'd heard your entire life, mm-hmm. as told to you <clears throat> by your father and your grandmother. Yes. Um that's that's what's driving the way to Rainy Mountain, this book, isn't it? Exactly. 
Yeah, I, the Waiter Rainy Mountain is uh, uh, something that came about in an interesting way. I, I, um, I was at the University of Santa Barbara. It was my first teaching post, University of California at Santa Barbara. And um, I had these stories in my mind, and they had been there since my father told them to me when I was a child, you know, and I, I'd make him tell me stories again and again and again. And uh, so they were transplanted into my mind, and they were there. And um, then... Uh, what, were, what was it about the stories that you insisted that your father would tell them to you again? Because because it seems like these are stories that are told again and again. Yes. Because these are ancestral stories. These are stories to mm-hmm. be told. Yeah, and that's the wonderful thing. You you get them into your ear and uh, mind, and they stay there, and because they're very exciting and colorful, and uh, so visual. So you're seeing visual. Yes, okay. indeed. Yeah, they are. They are acts of the imagination, and I've always thought that the imagination is uh, the power of seeing beyond reality. So you know, they they're wonderful things. And it occurred to me when I was at Santa Barbara that. I had these, and um, they had never been written down. And then I began to understand that they were fragile, that they could be lost easily. Uh, and so I wrote them down. And then uh, a couple of colleagues there, and, and I put together a book, which was, we, we had uh, an old Washington hand press at the university. And uh, so we printed a letter, it. A letter press? Yeah. And we printed it, uh, and, and uh, we had a grant from the university. Grants were much easier to get then than now. <laughs> and uh, so we bought a special um, paper for it, handmade paper. And we printed 100 copies called The Journey of Time A. And it was basically the story, made of the stories that are in the Waiterini Mountain without the commentaries or illustrations. So that's, how the, that's the genesis of the Waiterini Mountain. Let's take a short break, and then we'll be right back to talk more. Today on the program, N. Scott Mamaday is here. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today, and Scott Mamaday is here um, in the studio, and we're talking about poems and stories and music. Scott, thanks for choosing that song, and uh, do you mind telling us a little bit about it, like how, how you connect to it? Um, I, I don't remember how I first came across Traumerai, but uh, Horowitz has always been a favorite pianist of mine. And I uh, have a recording of uh, Horowitz in Moscow. And after many, many years of being in the United States, he returned to his native Russia, and he, was, he gave a concert there, which was quite wonderful. It's also on videotape. And, uh, weren't, weren't you in Moscow? Yes, I, I spent a lovely time. I've been in Moscow several times. But the first But time, never to Michigan before. No, no that's right. It's a, it, but I'm sure Michigan plays a better brand of football than uh, Moscow does. But I went there in 74, 1974, and it was a wonderful experience. It was behind the Iron Curtain, of course, and I had no right. idea what to expect. And it turned out to be not comfortable but fascinating. And so I went back many times. I've done work in Siberia. I have a foundation which has worked with people in Siberia and Russia. And uh, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful country actually. But it's got such a such an oppressive history. Mm -hmm. yeah. I guess we can't really point fingers at their political structure right now, considering our own state. I don't want to talk about that. No, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, me, me either. What about what about your foundation, though, Scott? Because that seems like such a that seems a valuable thing that so not only are you um creating pieces of literature and art and and watercolors and uh you know you, about my watercolors do you a little a little bit because ah. i saw some of the there's some um well you watercolored this is a watercolor of yours and then with your father's um mm. drawings on it and then one of the, not the novel but there's some beautiful um now i'm thumping around here I read about your work as a painter because your your father was a painter as well. Yes. Yes. And these so these are the ones that Oh yeah, yeah. Oh. Yes, okay. So yes. with these just for everyone listening, these are um it's <clears throat> it looks like parts of the the poems. Yes. Could you describe I, them? <laughs> well, they're, weird? they're they're uh they're watercolors and and uh, they do accompany my most recent book of poems and um there, well, many of them are abstract. Some of them are not. Some of them uh, have, uh, you know, the, the definite relation to the poem itself. So I, I am busy painting a lot of the time. Painting and writing are my, the expressions of my spirit, and so I divide my time almost equally between painting and writing. When did you start painting? Because did the writing? It seemed almost as if, from what I've read, the writing came first, and from yeah. your mother, was yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. My mother was a writer, and um, so there were always books in the house, and she was always reading things to me, and I would, uh, you know, I, she introduced me to um, a good many things that have made an impression upon me. And, um, and the framework of your name, too. The framework of my name. What do you mean? Um, because your mom's first name is also your, or is it? It's also an N. I don't know if yeah, it's the same. Yeah, her name. You saw different versions of your first name actually out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We get we were confused a, a good deal because her, she is uh, her her name is Natachi, which is um, my uh, email address. <laughs> <laughs> 
but she that's a Cherokee name. And my name is Navarre. Navarre. And she gave me that name because some of her distant ancestors came from Basque country and the province of Navarre. Oh. And yeah. So you have Basque and also Scottish. Yeah, well, the name. Yeah, I'm I'm not Basque, but but uh, well, maybe 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 I am maybe. A, a, across a long distance. You'll, I'm not sure. You'll have to do that <laughs> finding your roots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and what were we talking about? The way to Rainy Mountain. Um, what was I was had something to say about that, and I forgot. Oh, I'm sorry. I took us That's around right. in the wrong. Yeah. Well, we were also talking about your mom and how there were always books in the house. Oh, and... yes, yes. And uh, so I followed in her footsteps. I, I, I wanted to be a writer from the time I was 8 or 10 years old. And uh, so I did become a writer. So from when you were 8 or 10? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, was, I, because, I think largely because she was a writer. And so that was a, an incentive and uh, an example for me. And I wanted to be a writer from a very early age. My father <clears throat> was a painter. And I watched him paint all the time I was a child, but I didn't have any desire to become a painter until much later, I, in, well into my adulthood. In fact, when I, when I was in Moscow uh, in 1974, something about the, um, the uh, atmosphere there, something about the distance from home uh, led me to drawing. I started drawing things, and that went into painting and printmaking and so on. So it became a second career when I, from the time I was about 35 or 40. And, and <clears throat> when you were drawing in Moscow, was it drawing things that you were observing there, or was it actually from your mind's eye, your imagination, what you remembered from home? Both things, both things, yeah. I was trying to, I don't know, make a record of what I was looking at because it was very different mm. and exotic for me. <clears throat> and I was also drawing things that uh, came from my, you know, from my existence before Moscow. Do you have notebooks of these drawings? Uh, some, yes. Yes, I do. Oh. Are, you, are you somebody that has lots of notebooks with your writings? Like, is it something where, are you organized, Scott? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> not really. I, I, I have a lot of scribblings and, and uh, sketches around, but I don't collect them. You know, they're just strewn about it. And so I, I have them, but I, I couldn't, if you ask me, oh, could I see uh, the draft of this or that, I couldn't put my hands on it right away. <laughs> Would you mind? Can you can you take out the 1974 Moscow drawing? <laughs> I doubt it. I, maybe someone should start collecting them, though. Maybe that's that's a, yeah, maybe a job so. for someone, right? <laughs> maybe so. Yes, yes. Not it's a good thing to be organized, and and you know, it's a good. It's a, you, we talk about discipline when we're writing. Oh, people need discipline. Do they? Well. The, I, yeah, I guess they do. You know, I was trying to think uh, when I was writing Housemaid of Dawn, which was my first novel, um, I had a wonderful routine. I would get up in the morning before daylight and I would uh, drive down to an all night restaurant that I knew this was in Santa Barbara. And uh, I would get the, the uh, Los Angeles Times and, f and a cup of coffee with four strips of bacon. Four strips of bacon. Crisp bacon. And that's uh, how I began the day. And when I, when I got back home, I went right to my typewriter and started working. And uh, for about four hours, I could write. Uh, and that was a wonderful routine. 
But I, I've never achieved that level of discipline since. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so interesting because in a way, I, it, it worked for you. It did, yeah, it did. So what was it about? I wonder what it was that made you resist it. What made me resist it? I don't know, just laziness, I think, you know, <laughs> procrastination and laziness. But now I work uh, much more sporadically, and I, that works too, but perhaps not as efficiently. And uh, so there you are. That's, that's the story of my writing life. <laughs> well, that's it. You've heard it here on Living Writers. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> I think there's a lot more to the story. Mm. Maybe it's also because what you're making now, like the novel is a long form, and maybe it required that. Um, whereas what you're working on now, does it feel different, the the stories? or There's know. a great difference, I think, in between writing a novel, say, and, and writing poetry. Poem, I think of as something that you can... Uh, you can grasp and and uh, and produce uh, quickly and naturally. Uh, I write poetry because I must, um, and I, I I think the the novels have been aberrations of a kind. And I really am a poet and uh, have always been without knowing it necessarily. But it comes out, you know. Now I write poetry and I look at some of my poems and I think, did you do that? Did you do that? Did you do that? You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Which, which, which are some of your favorite ones, Scott? The Bear. I wrote a poem about the bear, which was really one of my first successes. I was at Stanford in the creative writing program. And uh, we were, I was with about five other students in a class. And our job was to write poems and uh, to share them and discuss them. It's a good way it's to. It's a good job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the and the bear. I wrote a poem called "The Bear," which um, uh, was my first uh, real. It won um, the Academy of American Poets Prize, and it was my first real success, I think. And it was one of your first poems too, because when you, yeah, because mm. so when you started writing more than. You weren't writing poems. When would you say, when did you start writing poems then? Because when you were eight or ten, you were thinking stories. Yeah. I think I first started with poetry as an undergraduate at the University of New Mexico. Uh, I, I, was, I joined a group of people <laughs> who called themselves writers. We, we went around uh, advertising that we were writers. And, uh, Did you course, have sort of the writer uniform? The well, <laughs> we, we had a we had a way of talking about ourselves and uh, and literature. Literature, you know, it was wonderful. And uh, <laughs> but none of us was a writer at the time. We became some of us became writers, others didn't. But uh, at that moment, you know, at that time, we were riding high on that uh, definition. The um, idea of it. The idea of it. Was, and and it was it was a good idea. Is, we, it, we, is we, it the right idea? Like, how is it what you are <laughs> from uh, different and the or the same as what you imagined at that time? How? Because you are a writer. <laughs> well, I am a writer, and uh, fortunately, I guess I became a writer out of that 
that those ideas, you know, of 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 oneself as a writer, that it became a reality for me. It was kind of a self fulfilling prophecy. But um, yeah, I became a writer, and uh, uh, I was interested in poetry when I was an undergraduate, and uh, so I started entering contests and so on. My first published poem was written, I think, uh, just after I graduated from college. So you had um, like acknowledgement or success, like you found a place for the poem out in the world pretty soon after you made it. Yeah, I was very fortunate in that respect. Uh, it seemed to take a long time to, you know, from the time I started writing poetry until I published something. But yeah, when I, when I published my first poem, I was elated because I thought, oh, now I'm a professional, I am a writer. And I can say it, and nobody can deny it, you know. So Here's the proof. Here's the proof of it, right? <laughs> Look, here is the proof of that, yeah. <laughs> I, well, the I, pudding, the proof of the proof pudding. Of the pudding. I've <laughs> always wondered where that came from. I don't understand. What is the proof of the pudding? Do you know? I don't know, but I'm already <laughs> trying to think about it. <laughs> yeah. And does it have to be the, the soft, mushy pudding, I or wonder. is it bread pudding, I, I or wonder. is it a other kind oh, of Oh, I hope it's dessert? bread pudding, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you've had lunch. <laughs> we'll take a short break, and then we'll be back today on Living Writers. And Scott Mamaday is here. Mm. We'll be right back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Today, and Scott Mamaday is here in the studio um, picking the music, talking about poems, and pudding. <laughs> pudding. You know, when I came here, I, I, this is delightful. I, I didn't realize I was going to hear some of my favorite music as well as uh, chat with you. Well, thank, thank <laughs> you for picking the music because it's, it's an education for me, too, and it's beautiful. I feel like it adds to your soul. Ah, that's a word, isn't it? Soul. I'm going to be talking about that to some extent tonight. The soul. How so? Well, it, uh, well, it's a long story. I'm not sure we can... Uh, <laughs> I can tell you the answer to that immediately, but uh, I'm talking about uh, things that come from native wisdom and uh, uh, principles of living. And uh, the source, I call the source one of these principles. The source. Yeah, origin, uh, source. 
but it's also spirit, energy, and what most of us would might call the soul. So that's a, that's a concept that interests me greatly. And do you think... Mm. Um, I think it's interesting that there's so many words for it. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is, Scott? Because we, I, think, uh, I think one of the answers to that is we don't know enough about it to be definitive, you know, to say, all right, the soul is such a thing. It's like the imagination. How, how do you define that? Or the mind. The mind, I, that occupies my thinking a lot. What, what is the mind? Wait, is it the brain? It's no, not just the brain. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We, the brain is, is uh, uh, tactile. You know, we can, it, we can see it. It's a good diagram and so on. But the mind, no, that's something else. But it's, wow, is it, uh, is it exciting and important and powerful? And it's, it's like, what, mm-hmm. it's, it's a fusion, isn't it? It can't exist without the, the, the physical, you know, like the, mm-hmm. no, I'm knocking on my body right now. Yeah, I see that you are. Don't <laughs> I'm hurt telling yourself. the radio listeners, <laughs> it's like mime the show. Uh-huh. Um, and, but also something that ignites us. Oh, yes, yes. So yes. the soul. Yeah. Soul. Or, or spirit or source or. Energy or something. Energy. Yeah, exactly. It's like the um, the words for snow. I, I read somewhere once that um, I think it's the, the Inuit have just like hundreds of words for snow. Yes, I've heard that too. I'm, and I'm sure that's true. Yeah. Because it's it's so, yeah. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. And sometimes... sometimes... I lived among the Inuit for a time. You did? In, in Greenland and in Alaska. And uh, you I, lived I don't in know Greenland? their language. Hmm? You lived in Greenland. Well, I didn't live there, but I visited there and stayed for some time. It lived in a in an old people's home in uh, the original Tula. It was fascinating, and uh, it was great. Yeah, I, I I love the Arctic, and I've I've explored quite a bit of it. Well, because you were saying you were in Siberia as well. Mm-hmm. Siberia, oh, Alaska, so. Baffin Island, Northern Canada. Hmm. Yeah, wonderful cold country, you know. So different from the Southwest. So different the from the Southwest. And yeah. the, what's what's required of you, maybe? Yeah. Well, maybe one of the reasons I love it is that I grew up in a much more temperate climate, and uh, so getting into the cold was was new and exciting for me as a young man. I probably wouldn't uh, care as much for it now as I did then. But uh, there's something wonderful about uh, you know uh, one of the. Um, one of the great explorers, uh, Amundsen, I think it was, he said, give me the dogs and the ice, you can have the rest. And I told that to a girlfriend of mine at one time, and she said, um, uh, you can have the dogs and the ice, I'll take the rest. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, a very good pairing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> one seems more like a romantic vision and one seems <laughs> somewhat pl- practical. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, yes, and now with the disappearing ice as well, right? With uh, the Iditarod, apparently they're waiting for snow so they can begin the race. Or, Is that or, right? or they're trying to do the race without some of the snow, which seems impossible. Yeah, how do you do that? I don't know. I'm substituting skidoos for the dog team. What's a skidoo? <laughs> Um, you know, a um, uh, snowmobile. Oh, still, it seems like you might need snow. 
No, no, no. Oh, no you can... don't? It's okay. <laughs> it's got a great name. I love that. Yeah. Oh, skidoo. Skidoos, <laughs> yeah. Being my new password. No, just kidding. <laughs> it won't be. But, um, <clears throat> but, but so the music that we just heard then, too... Um, Thank you for picking the songs that you've picked today because it does it, it it gives um it gives an idea of uh, who you are on the inside a little bit. Mhm. Well, thank you. I think I would like to think that. Yeah. Yeah. I should should probably uh you know have Indian music, Native American uh, drums should you? and should flutes you? and uh songs. I don't know, but that's been a part of my life certainly. Well, maybe Yes, and what are some beautiful? We should talk about it. It's not hard to. It's not uh, hard to find. It is hard to find. Um, there, there are recorded uh, songs, you know, and uh, flute music and drums and so on, but nothing that you can. I can put my finger on. But it's very much a part of my being, and uh, I hear it in my in my mind. Ah, mind, mind. Yes. Yeah. It's a good place to hear it. <laughs> what does it sound like when you're hearing it? <laughs> oh, it sounds like uh, dancing. You know, I, I belong to an a organization in the Kiowa tribe called the Gord Dance Society. And we meet once a year in J- July and dance. Well, I, I can't do it now, but uh, when, I was, when I was not in a wheelchair, I could dance. And there's a wonderful excitement and energy to that. So I hear that kind of music in my mind frequently. And what is the the gourd dance? Because it's a book of your poems as well. Yes, it's a society, and it's it's an old soldier society in the Kiowa tribe. There used to be many soldier societies, and now there I think there are just two. One is called the Gourd Dance Society, and the other is called the Black Legging Society. And these are so were soldier societies. And uh, you have to be a veteran of the wars to um, to belong to the Black Leggings, but not so the Gord Dance. And I've been a member of the Gord Dance Society since 1969. And why did you join? It's a great honor to belong to that society. And because I was a Kiowa, I thought, this is great. I should have that status, you know, a member of the Gord Dance Society. Is it is it cross tribes? No. Well, now, now perhaps you can say it is because at one time it was purely Kiowa. Now you find uh, some members who are members of other tribes. And is that a good thing? I think it is. It's a kind of trans, uh, it's a kind of um, meeting of of cultures and and, uh, languages and so on. I think it's probably a good thing. And it because it seems interesting to me as well, Scott, because your your mom was part Cherokee. Yes. And then and you were born in in a hospital that was Kiowa Comanche. Mm-hmm. Okay? So it feels like there's yeah like there's there's always been a kind blend. of amalgam to things there. Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe um, maybe we can talk a little bit about the way to Rainy Mountain with because we've talked about the genesis of part of the book because there's piece there's there's three sections but then within each of the sections there's parts mm-hmm. as well for each page that you're opening and there's the the, the um the drawings paintings by your father mm-hmm. as well the visual mm-hmm. element um but it seems like this book had the the purpose of stories but also your grandmother died and you went on a journey and is that 
that also part of the story of this book? Kaya was migrated uh, from, uh, I think the earliest evidence we have of them places them in western Montana near the headwaters of the Yellowstone River. And before that, they must have been farther north, and they must eventually have come uh, across the Bering Bridge from Asia. So their history is old, but it's not written. It's an oral kind of history. But uh, along the way, uh, they told these stories, and uh, they have become a part of a, uh, an oral tradition. And um, it's an intricate uh, story. The, the migration itself, um, I wanted to, to know about that in a, in a very, uh, in a very uh, deep way. And so when I was writing The Way to Rainy Mountain or compiling the stories, I traced, retraced the route from Montana down to southwestern Oklahoma, which is where the, the, the migration ended. And uh, what a fascinating journey that was. And when you say you retraced it, what's the practical parts of that? How, what, is, what did you do? How, what I drove up to Montana. And then I imagined the route of migration from Montana down into Oklahoma. I drove that distance and uh, took uh, notice of the, the landscape and the wonderful features of the landscape in the course of that journey and ended up at uh, my grandmother's grave at Rainy Mountain. So it was a personal pilgrimage and a wonderful kind of research uh, and uh, re-establishing the migration itself in my mind, planting it in my mind and vision. And when you were doing it, were you? Did you feel like there were more people with you too? Like I guess I'm imagining that you did it alone, phys physically. I guess we're in this that time. But was it something like you felt like those moments when you can sometimes feel? Um, the overlays of other times? Absolutely, yeah. All along the route, I was imagining that what it was for those, you know, group, the, the band of, of people making that migration, and uh, they were with me, or I was with them. From the time, uh, from the time uh, we came across the, the uh, bridge, I, you know, I, I talk in some of my writing about the, what I call the blood memory, and um, I, I think there is such a thing. We remember things in our distant uh, past before we were born, and I had that uh, feeling as I was making this, this uh, trek. Um, you know, I like to say, uh, oh, I remember being on the bridge. Yeah, that was a, <laughs> that was a long time ago, and it was cold. God, it was cold. We had dogs, you know, and fire. Uh, otherwise, we would have been lost. And uh, it was cold. God, it was cold. Yeah. So that's why maybe you went you went north, right? Probably. Why you back went to, to back to my roots? You did, right? You were like, I want to see the pre-bridge where yeah. we, right? Well, you know, they say the Kai was that their origin myth has it that they came into the world through a hollow log. I love that. I want to I want to find the log, you know, and in, in my mind, in my mind's eye, I have been there. I've seen the log. What does it look like then? To well, you? it lies uh, horizontal in the snow and. Uh, you know, it's still there with an opening at both ends, and you can 
Imagine the people crawling through into the present world. And it's <laughs> still there. Okay. Well, I have, I have a question for you on that because I think part of the story, isn't it, that people, mm. the Kiowa were coming through, and then a woman who was pregnant got stuck mm-hmm. in the log and gummed up the works. <laughs> gummed up the works. Good way to put it, yeah. From that point, nobody could get through. And that's why the Kiowas are a small tribe in number. Yes. I don't know what happened to the other half, but uh, maybe they eventually got through too. I don't know. And the the woman, I don't know. Did she come? She must have come through. Sure. I feel Well, I was going to ask you. (laughs) Because I wondered about that. Yes, I, I can. Uh, I can. I, I can relieve your list of. I can strike strike that from your list of anxieties. She did come she through. She did. Yeah. She did. Is that a question mm. that you would have asked your father too? Do you sure. think? Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, well, Scott, let's let's take a short break and then we'll we'll be right back um, today Good. on right. Living Writers. And Scott Momaday is here. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Scott Living Writers, I'm T. Hetzel today, and Scott Momaday is here in the studio. Thanks for playing that song, choosing that song to play as as well, Scott. Well, my pleasure. I, I uh, you, you... like that music and the movie and, uh, of course, Billy the Kid. I don't know if you know this, but Billy the Kid is one of my, my great glories. I grew up in New Mexico, and uh, you can't be in New Mexico as a child without knowing about Billy the Kid and playing games in which he figures, you know. He looms large. Oh, loomed large. And he and I used to ride the range together, get into all kinds of scrapes and uh, rescue maidens who were in dire distress. And it was a great time. What was the name of your horse? Pecos. Pecos. Mm -hmm. Real horse or imaginary? Both. Oh, really? Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I imagined him before I owned him, and uh, I was given a, I was given Pecos when I was about 12, 13 years old at Jemez Pueblo, New Mexico, where my parents taught, and uh, I rode around that country on the back of that horse for several years. I must have covered a thousand miles or more. Great, great experience. And, and with, were you often 
often alone or with Billy the Kid? I was with Billy the Kid a lot of the time, yeah. He wrote a few steps behind me and on my on my left side, as I remember. Mm. I love that. <laughs> well, thanks thanks for bringing that song into the the program today too, and thanks to Tex for engineering, um, making making a sound. Yes, <laughs> out there into the world. I wasn't expecting that to give you the names of and then hear them right away. That's remarkable. Well, it's it's like it's your soundtrack for this moment. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Um, so could we, so could we talk about how you, you, cause you also have, so we, and Scott Mamaday, this is your name. And then when you were six months old, you were, you were also given another name Mm -hmm. as well. Um, I guess, what could you talk about that a little bit? Tell us about your name and where it came from. And yeah, uh, when I was, uh, when I was born in Oklahoma, and uh, my first home was my grandparents' home at a uh, town called Mountain View. It was uh, not in town, but near the town, on the Rainy Mountain Creek. And um, when I was six months old, my parents took me from Oklahoma to Wyoming, to Devil's Tower, as most of us know it, this gigantic uh, tree-like monument in the Black Hills. It's sacred to the Kiowas because in the course of their migration, they camped there. They lived there for a time. And they have a wonderful story about uh, the um, creation of this uh, rock tree, as they call it. Tsoi, rock tree. And uh, so we went there for reasons I I don't really know. But I I have an idea that it was somehow to present me to my past, my distant past, and to the um, sacredness of that place. And so when we returned to Oklahoma, um, an old man in the tribe came to visit, and he picked me up and uh, started telling stories. It was the name-giving process, the name-giving ceremony. And uh, when he finished talking, he looked down at me, and he said, And now you are Tsoi Tali, rock tree boy, to commemorate my having been taken to this sacred place. So that's how that came about, my Indian name. A pretty great name. I think it's uh, powerful, yeah. As as that monument, that 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 strange and immense uh, feature in the landscape is powerful. Yes. Do you return to it? Uh huh. Yes, I've been back there several times, and uh, we'll, we'll hope to go again. My daughter, one of my daughters, uh, my second daughter, whose name is Jill, is making a film called The Return to Rainy Mountain, which is about the family and our forebears and so on. So that, that uh, so why the rock tree features uh, is a feature in her film, and uh, uh, it becomes more and more important as time goes. Because then you, you of course, are also passing on these stories mm-hmm. to your children. Mm-hmm. Does Jill have an Indian name as well? Yeah, she has an Indian name, Skoptedema which means standing solidly, like the rock tree. Yes. Mm-hmm. Are all, the other daughters also have names that are linked to your yeah, name? Yeah, they have Indian names, yeah. But, but are they like that standing solidly and you can see the connection to rock tree yeah, boy? Yeah, their names are meaningful in certain ways. I, one of my daughters is named Pai Maton, which means sun girl. And she was given that name because she is light-skinned and... Uh, um, reminds people of the of the sun, and uh, she has that energy, the sun's energy, because of her name. 
Sundance. Sundance, yeah. There was an old Sundance tribe, the Kiowas. You know. um, There's so many stories, T, stories in sto- within stories. We don't have time enough to go into them, but... Uh, but stories within stories. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's an interesting thing to me because there are so many stories uh, and stories within stories. But I like to say uh, that there is only one story, really, only one story, but there are many stories in the one. And why? Why do you like... Why? I like the complexity of that, uh, or the mystery of it, you know, one story. We all, we all inhabit one story, but there are so many stories in the one. For example, you know, we have one story about creation and, uh, and evolution and so on, and it's a great story. But each of us, too, has, has his own story. We are the story of ourselves, and so we fit into the, to the one great story somehow. It's necessary. And uh, we don't always understand it, but we each have a part in the story, and we have to play that part as best we can. That is that defines us as humans. And so it's it's both very unifying and empowering. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yes. inviting. We're all a part of it. Mm-hmm. But unifying. It's almost as if, like, when you you go up into space and you see the Earth. And you th- see it as yeah, we are exactly, yes. one story. Yeah. And you know, it's a serious business. We, we have the responsibility of playing our role in the story. Some of us do and some of us don't. And, the, and so we end up with uh, tragic figures, you know, those who do not fulfill their part in the story. Uh, or, like, or Ra- like Raskolnikov, say, or, you know, Moby Dick, or you know, Ahab. But... but but is it that that's their part to play? Ah, yes, that's that's possibly so, and I think you that may be so. Yeah, and we don't understand, but there's we don't understand. Ahab uh, is a good example because uh, he did play his part to the hill, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or even I, I can remember the Les Miserables with the character Javert. I'm probably not saying his name correctly, but I remember when I first saw it, I was just so angry at him and just really hated like what he was doing to Jean Valjean and just thought he was just a monster. Mm-hmm. And then as I got older and and then I, I saw the play, I read it and then thought, then I thought he's there's something about him that you feel for. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that true of so many uh, so many heroes in literature? You can say the same thing about Hamlet, can't you? King Lear, oh, wow. Love King Lear. <laughs> I love this <laughs> Um Scott, earlier you were talking about um, the sacredness of, yes. of the name. Um, and I wonder about the stories um, and about how these stories are reaching young people now, like the new generations. What do you think about the stories and the sacredness that, by by listening to the music that we've listened to today, for example, if I feel, I'll speak for myself, I won't <laughs> generalize, but I feel fed by it in some way. Like, I don't know if it's too much to say made greater, but there's something is given to me that feels like I can feel something and I 
become changed by it. And I wonder if stories that are passed down aren't the same. It makes us who we are, knowing these stories. Absolutely. So, so what... I know you're doing your part of telling the stories so that more generations will know them. But are they, are they able to find the stories? I, you know, you're asking a question that uh, I'm not sure has an answer. Um, the oral tradition is, is, is much stronger than we realize, even though it has to be passed from generation to generation by word of mouth. Um, but it's stronger. So it's, it's stronger in the sense that it's, uh, um, it's, it's more vital than writing in certain ways, you know, because... Uh, the storyteller has a tremendous responsibility in passing something from one generation to another. The listener has to listen with great care and then has to remember what he hears. So all these are things that are not necessarily applicable to writing. Writing gives us a false security where language is concerned because we can write something down and it'll be there when we come back for it. In the oral tradition, no. It's, it's, the oral tradition is much more fragile, but it's much more vital. And uh, we were talking a moment ago about plays, Hamlet. This is the best example of oral tradition that we have in our society, theater. Because you, you see actors passing on words to each other and but they're talking to you with their um, body language and uh, inflections and movements on stage. This is exactly what the oral tradition is. And the audience is also mm. part of that energy. Yes, exactly. Or... Exactly, yeah. So I, I encourage uh, people who, to see plays. It's a wonderful kind of learning experience and a, and a great uh, contact with language. Are you making plays? Well, I've I've written some plays, and I'm I'm thinking of doing more. And I love to see plays, you know. Yeah, I have a friend who's a great playwright, uh, Bernard Pomerantz, who uh, wrote The Elephant Man, and he and I talk about theater a great deal. Mm -hmm. And the language that becomes goes into the air. The language that goes into the air. Yeah, there, there are more words than stars in the sky. I think. <laughs> Scott, thank you so much for talking with me today. Ty, it's been a real it. pleasure. Thank you. Um, well, everyone, you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, today on the program, and Scott Momaday. Um, until next time.
going to let him play. Walton takes it across the timeline. Gets a screen from Fieldfeld. Gives it back out to Dawkins. Back to Walton. Open three from the left wing. He got it! Derek Walton ties the game! team the team the team good wednesday afternoon to everybody out there you're listening to wcbn fm and arbor and the daily sport report my name is david carlson on the other side of the glass this afternoon i have dan disler and adam Brodnax. guys we're doing a, a triple header today Triple header from Alumni Field, take it over to Chrysler Arena, and then go what, 300 miles south, is that right? To Dayton, <laughs> Ohio, where Leo Blavin and Simon Kaufman will be calling the first four game as Michigan's basketball team and John Beeline takes on Tulsa in a first four matchup. So the NCAA tournament started last night, um, a pair of 16 teams uh, faced off and a pair of 11 teams faced off in Dayton and what was it last night Dunk City Dunk, Dunk City, City ran all over uh, Fairleigh Dickinson and a really good to my mind um, Greg Marshall team in Wichita State beat Vanderbilt by 20 I believe the final there late last night was 70 to 50 um, what did you like about um, those two teams this is the dunk city who now is three and one all time by the way in the NCAA tournament which is the second best uh, winning percentage uh, out of any school in the nation only behind Duke all time which 